Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Shuddhasho Free Thought Podcast. Today, we talk to Andrew Kirkland, who is a freelance journalist and consultant. He has been director of the Norwegian Rainforest Foundation and a senior advisor for several Norwegian NGOs working on issues of social justice, food security, and the environment. We discuss questions around the climate crisis and particularly how countries such as Norway can bring something to the table. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a real pleasure having you on board. Um, I guess we'll just go straight into it. Um, We're having a conversation today on climate change, environmentalism, and just the the climate crisis in general. And um, would you mind giving us an overview on on what your thoughts are about the key issues that we're currently facing regarding the climate? Well, you know, climate and environment are two of the major issues of our time. And I think that the, especially the younger generation has understood that. Um, we have to uh, get our house in order and uh, secure that we are not going beyond two degrees centigrade um, climate change in the future because if we do we risk rampant uh, trouble with the weather uh, food patterns uh, food production and maybe even civil strife so that's the reason why the Paris Accords from 2015 were so important and um, that's one of the reasons why climate is on everybody's lips I suppose. Um, you recently mentioned, uh, you just mentioned rather the Paris Accords from 2015. Um, there have obviously been several conversations and even some controversies around that. Um, how how sustainable do you think the Paris Accords actually are? They're vital, and I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any um, doubt as to how important they are. But um, how how feasible do you think they actually are? Well, the problem, you know, is they're not sustainable in the sense that the Paris Accord is a voluntary scheme. Uh, Governments Mm -hmm. of the world came together, signed a piece of paper, said that they wanted to keep climate change within two degrees centigrade um, and that they will do what they can in order to reach their goals uh, on their national territory. But there is no um, force in the world which could make them or will make them abide by that if they don't see that in their own national interest. And that is the problem, of course, it's a voluntary accord. Uh, but then again, I mean, that's what we have. Uh, it's, it's much better than nothing. And, you know, the, the um, conference of the parties, a, an annual meeting between all uh, governments of the world had been going on for almost 20 years before the Paris Accords. So it's so it might be of a week. Uh, mm-hmm. Um. So, as you just said, the Paris Accords. There's there's a certain risk because of the voluntary nature of it. Um. In that there isn't a truly meaningful way to to um ensure that it's being implemented. Um. Which regions? Uh, which which countries? Which governments? Would you say have the most work to do on uh, and should be the ones that you know we really should be keeping our eye out on as such um when it comes to issues such as the climate crisis well you know uh, it's fairly obvious that the 
industrial part of the world, the rich countries, um, those who have or who first went through the Industrial Revolution approximately 200 years ago and who were also colonial powers extracting resources from all over the place, Africa, Asia, Latin America, they bear a, a major uh, responsibility because they have been able to 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 cash in if you like on oil extraction and, and coal extraction and whatever have you for years and years whereas some of the more new states especially in Africa um, are hardly you know modern industrial states at all they're basically uh, rural um, countries with a lot of agricultural practices, maybe 60-70% of the population being small-scale farmers. And, and uh, their, their emission per capita is, is, you know, almost non-existent. Whereas in my own country, for instance, uh, uh, we are almost on top of that pyramid. So in that sense, industrial countries bear more responsibility. It's, it's, it's fairly obvious. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we've we had a conversation on our podcast with um, with Dr. Hazrel Barrow in recent months on questions of individual responsibility um, versus kind of collective responsibility, um, and uh, the question on that particular moment was on how. Um, within countries, there's often a, a responsibility that's placed on individual people on issues such as recycling and composting, um, not using plastic shopping bags, not using plastic straws, and that sometimes misses the bigger picture on, on industrialization, on massive corporations, on the military, uh, which... Um, in, in terms of the countries that you've spoken about seems to be a similar focus. Mm. Um, how do you think the conversation around that um, has evolved? Do you think that needs to evolve much, much further? Because there, there sometimes seems to be a gap in that. Yes, I mean, it's, um, it's contentious, it's difficult, and there is no clear cut answer as far as I see it anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, a, a good life for all of us is a life where we feel part of something bigger. And that means also making and taking choices in your everyday life, uh, being part of a trend, being part of community, being part of a quest. Um, is something which we value as humans. So in that sense, recycling and biking and eating less meat and all of this has a value in itself mm -hmm. because it connects you to something bigger than you. Um, on the other hand, of course, we mustn't be duped into uh, believing that you know there aren't interests behind this focus also on the individual in the sense that major corporations i mean from a historical background imagine what's you know the um 
the um, the oil companies, the mm-hmm. tobacco companies, the the rifle association in the United States, for instance, how they have tried to portray what they have been doing as an individual thing. I mean, it's 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 not the guns in the U.S. that kills people. They say it's the people. Mm-hmm. In that sense, they absolve themselves for you know of any responsibility. And I think it's um, we have to to analyze politically <clears throat> what is going on. And that big oil, for instance, has for many years uh, put their money into dubious think tanks um, on the far right, and they have spewed out a lot of propaganda, which is more, you know, on your own personal carbon footprint and stuff like that. And and in that sense, diverting uh, um, the attention away from their own policies. So there is mm-hmm. uh, there is an inherent uh, contradiction here, uh, which which is difficult to solve. Absolutely. But it's um, it's worth um, being encouraged by the fact that I think these conversations are now happening more and more often. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the new thing around now is people, organizations and, and, and uh, groups of individuals taking um, big companies to court uh, using their own uh, laws in order to, to, to pressurize companies to change their policies. I mean, it's been mm-hmm. done in Norway, it's been done in Britain, Portugal, the United States, several countries. So that is a new trend we are seeing. Um, I want to dig into something um, particular um, about Norway. And I think we're going to shift the focus now a little bit on on looking at Norway, perhaps as uh, one might even a case study on, on certain things that are perhaps being done right, certain things that perhaps are not. Um, Norway, of course, has um, a massive economic and energy reliability on oil. Mm. And um, there's no way around discussing environmentalism without considering sustainable energy. Um, Where do you see Norway going in that direction? And and what do you think the challenges are with, with um, with balancing that? reliability on oil with a commitment to environmentalism. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Because as you say, I mean, Norway in many ways is a green champion. It's often seen as a green champion uh, mm-hmm. by others. And to a certain extent, that is true. And due to the fact that we are few people in, in this country, 6 million and a fairly large landmass, although you know the majority of it is would be mountains um only three percent arable land um, but still it's it's a society which has been able to evolve in a very democratic fashion um and in relative terms um little difference between people i mean a lot of you know basically the whole country is middle class um and there are some strict rules and regulations uh, when it comes to environmental issues. Um, and I, I think it's, it's all right to say that Norway also is a champion in international negotiations. We always you know, dish out money when the UN needs some extra funds in order to facilitate 
um, some of these processes when when things have you know come to a halt when it comes mm -hmm. to negotiations of different kinds. Um, we always give money to small uh, island states who don't have the money in their coffers in order to go to places like Paris or wherever you have these climate negotiations. So all that is very laudable. On the other hand, of course, as as uh, the UN Special Rapporteur, I think his name is David Boyd, said when he visited the country, spent a fortnight here in 2019, you know, he said something like, I mean, it doesn't matter that Norway is the global champion when it comes to sales of electric cars, mm -hmm. when at the same time Norway gives new, uh, or keeps on extracting new sources, new fields, um, and digging uh, new wells in the Barents Sea. And that mm -hmm. is a paradox which this country can, can, uh, cannot ex escape from. And it's a contradiction, uh, gnawing, if you like, at, at the country's soul. Is that something that is being discussed more and more often within Norway? Because the, the trend in most countries seems to be that conversations around environmentalism are becoming much more mainstream. Um, rather than purely scientific or intellectual. So is, is, is that particular contradiction something that is being grappled with more broadly? Yes, I'd say yes. And um, this is also due to the fact that the, the um, one thing is, is what we're doing as a oil and gas producing country. Another thing is all the amazed way, uh, wealth we have put into the banking system. We have this sovereign, this large sovereign wealth fund, which is amongst the biggest in the world, mm -hmm. uh, having been created uh, uh, thanks to revenue from the oil, and and you know very foresighted politicians who said that we put this into the bank so that future generations might. Um, use of this of this wealth, um, but a lot of that has also been put into investments in other oil companies and mm -hmm. various extractive industries, and there is a growing understanding here also amongst youngsters and intellectuals, and to a certain extent amongst also politicians that there is a large financial risk in putting too many of your eggs in the same baskets. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this financial risk could really backfire on Norway uh, because the oil and gas industry is such a large chunk of our industrial base. So yes, the short answer is yes, there is more discussion on this than there used to be. Um, so Norway is is often understood as having a an almost cultural love of the outdoors um, <laughs> yes. and and there is um and of course it's one of the countries in the world which which has an embedded right to roam yes um are some of those aspects um perhaps extra beneficial in 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 tackling um environmentalism meaningfully yes i think so in the sense that um Going into nature, as a deep ecologist would say, 
going into nature opens your senses towards nature and the connection between you and the environment. I mean, be it trees or plants or the sea or the mountains or birds or other animals. Um, and, and that sensitizes you to a certain extent. Uh, and, and I think if everybody just lived in, in large cities, they would and didn't have this urge uh, to at least in the weekends, if you like, to go out into nature, um, mm -hmm. then they would be less um, prone, maybe, to to think about environmentalism. And I think that is a a major thing here in Norway that we love the outdoors and mm -hmm. we appreciate the outdoors. And the more programs you see, be they uh, produced by the BBC or whatever, on catastrophes and what climate uh, change might mean also for nature and natural processes, uh, the more aware people become that they might lose this connection mm -hmm. to nature. And that is something they don't want to. Um, would you actually mind taking a moment uh, for listeners who um, may not be aware of what a right to roam actually means? What, what does that what does that mean in practice in Norway? It means that there are no off limits uh, when you you walk about in the forest or in the mountains or wherever you you roam. Um, you can camp wherever you like as long as uh, it is a, no closer than fifty meters from a private house. And there is no big landowner who who might just fence of his or her uh, territory um, you are basically free to roam wherever you like um, and that is very different in this country from almost any other country I know uh, mm. and I there are you know there are delegations coming from other countries uh, like for instance from Scotland uh, in the UK in order to learn from what's, what Norwegians have had as their natural uh, way of living for many years, given that there are so many large landowners over in Scotland and that you're not free to roam wherever you like. So it's almost like a, a collective ownership or certainly a collective access of yes. land. Yes, yeah, so there's a collective access. I mean, there are private owners who own big chunks of land, but you are able to roam on their land too. Um, they might have some type of extractive uh, uh, possibilities of their land and forest and timber and stuff like that, but you were able to roam on their territory, yes. That's very, that's a very interesting um, model, and I can certainly see that encouraging more open conversations around sustainable methods of environmentalism and certainly embedding the kind of human um the human angle of environmentalism because we often run the risk of perhaps viewing humans as separate from the environment rather yes. than as part of the environment and that is very important to, i mean this dualism if you like uh, cartesian uh, you know um is, is something which has been with us for far too long and I think that one of the keys to open for us is is to 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 um, get this this 
two separate entities to, to fuse together because, I mean, that is basically the main hope, I think, for us as a species to, to come to terms uh, with, with the havoc we have created and, and the new path we have to find. Uh, we are part and parcel of nature. We're not a separate entity. We cannot dominate nature as, as if it were just a commodity because it's not. Um, you mentioned earlier on when we were discussing the question on which countries have more of a responsibility, and you you mentioned at that stage questions around um, not just industrialization, but also on on colonialism and kind of exploitative practices around indigenous communities. Mm. Um, Norway, of course, has uh, the indigenous Sami community, and. I was just wondering whether conversations are also happening around maintaining traditions and maintaining um, meaningful ways of sustainability and sustainable practices that they might have into a broader culture of environmentalism. Yes, that is uh, an ongoing uh, discussion. And of course, the Sami people, the... um, indigenous um, people of Norway were for centuries um, subjugated um, and were seen as inferior people uh, with no culture worth uh, keeping and so on and so forth and they were forced to learn Norwegian and during the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s, they were hardly able to, you know, use their own language in schools and stuff like that. There was a change in the early 80s when a major uh, hydroelectric power plant uh, was built against the will of the Sami people and a lot of environmental people in Norway too, up in the far north. Um, the Sami people and the activists lost their case and the, the hydroelectric power um, or the dam rather was built. But that also signaled a new um, era, if you like, uh, for the Sami people in the sense that they got their own parliament up in the north. They got more say in local matters, resource matters, and a huge cultural lift in the sense that uh, schooling was on and is now done in their own local language. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, a, a large part of the culture was salvaged and is being strengthened almost by the year, I'd say, today. And of course, concerning environmental issues, they are often at odds with the industrial society, of, of course. Um, what sounds um, like from that particular um, case is, again, a reminder of the intersectional nature of environmentalism, because it seems that um, a, a question on, on energy and sustainability, which could be seen by many as a purely environmental question or purely economic question um, seem to have a much more broader impact on, as you mentioned, um, self-autonomy, self-determination on culture, on language. And do you think that that is perhaps um, something that needs to be embedded more deeply globally around questions of environmentalism, seeing it as part and parcel of a broader question of social justice? Because we're seeing 
Um, we're seeing debates on social justice around, for example, race, on, on LGBT issues, on gender happening in many parts of the world. Uh, and especially with the COVID crisis as well, we're seeing a lot of conversations around class. Um, do you think that a more intersectional approach where all of these issues are also considered in addition to environmentalism would be a more fruitful way of tackling the climate crisis? Well, you know, I think this is, is one way of getting more um, people involved in these issues, having ownership to their own life and their own situation and their own solutions. And uh, cultural issues um, of this kind are then very important and uh, they exist in every country. They exist in, in rich countries and they exist in poor countries. I mean, the mm -hmm. situation for minorities in some of the world's poorest countries is, is, is not very good. I mean, it's mm -hmm. uh, in some Asian countries, for instance, I, it's very tough. Um, mm -hmm. Brazil is, is, is a different country in the sense that they, through many years of struggle, um, their indi indigenous population has been able to secure large tracts of land, um, which they are sort of the caretakers for, even though Bolsonaro is trying his utmost to, to reverse that trend. But yes, I think those issues are very important. Social justice in all forms is part and parcel of being human, you know. Mm -hmm. um, a question that has been quite regularly asked during um, almost all of our podcasts um, and, and seems to have uh, a, an almost omnipresent impact on every discussion has been the question around the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. And um, I was wondering whether, particularly in, in a Norwegian context, whether the pandemic has had any sort of impact on conversations around um, climate and around climate justice. Yes, well, the, the, a major impact has, of course, been finding the nexus between um, our lifestyles and pandemics. Mm -hmm. Where do <laughs> pandem pandemics come from? Why do they suddenly burst into our neighborhood? Um, what are these wet markets? What is this trade in rare meat and stuff like that? What does that do? Mm -hmm. with sonotic things and stuff like that. And that is, is a conversation, of course. Um, and our the way we rely upon international trade routes and just-in-time type of um, um, agreements, is that good? Is that bad? Mm -hmm. um, what does that do to the environment? What does that do to the climate? So um, a lot of soul searching to a certain extent on our behavior and the way we have uh, organized our societies and also our international community. Yes, that has been part of the debate here. Um, and the other part is that, of course, people have <laughs> discovered their own country in a different way than before because people have been you know people are well off in the sense that they often travel abroad 
during winter time or during summer holidays or Easter holidays or whatever have you. Now they have not been able to do so, so they have traveled in their own country and maybe appreciate more um, the natural wonders of their own land, which is mm -hmm. also good, I think. And of course, the um, third thing would then be our uh, f food production. I mean, where mm -hmm. does our food come from? Uh, you, you know, at the outset of the pandemic, people uh, hoarded food in the sense that they were afraid that, you know, just in time and stuff like that would stop. So now there is more emphasis on why don't we produce more of our of our own food? Mm -hmm. um, so, which is also a very interesting discussion to have. I suppose um, the other side of the pandemic has been an increasing understanding of the um, the poor, the genuinely porous nature of of borders, which is you know in in the idea that borders don't prevent a pandemic from happening. Mm. Um, and and of course that a similar um, realization has been happening over the past few decades around around climate change in that it, it's not just a case of maintaining things in your own house it's um, how are you having an impact on on your neighbors and vice versa and would would you would you say that that's something that's also been um highlighted because again uh, it, it certainly has in some other parts of the world which perhaps viewed their um their practices in a more insular way yes well i mean that people understand that we are part of a larger <laughs> global community and and what we do in this country might have repercussions in other countries and um, yes i think that you know the whole pandemic situation has led to people reflecting more on the status of our society, the status of societies, the international community, and where do we want to go from here? I mean, obviously, people would love to go back to where they were, traveling over to England to, to, to have, you know, to watch Premier League and stuff like that. Um, going to the to the to the Côte d'Azur in France um, and, and sunbathing and stuff like that, but at the same time, I think there is more consciousness now about mm -hmm. our individual choices having wider repercussions. Yes. Um, so, reaching towards the end of of this conversation, um, we like to say here at at Shudashur that it's it's the um, it may be the end of the podcast, but it's not the end of the broader discussion. Yes. Um, so having having perhaps started this conversation uh, today, where would you like um, listeners who are tuning into this episode, where would you like them to perhaps go next? What are What would you say are things we should be looking ahead towards as both as matters of urgency, but also perhaps as matters of hope? Well, you know, there are many societal issues which are of utmost importance. Um, and and the, the state of our democracies is an extremely important conversation to have. Uh, voting at general elections is very important. Um, trying to have a civil discussion when you discuss with political opponents, all of these issues mm -hmm. are extremely important. Um, 
not to let others decide. You have to take a, a stand yourself, I think is very important. And when it comes to, to environmentalism, I mean, um, your own local community is the place you live. You have to talk, sort of start there and mm -hmm. defend if you have some lovely neighborhood park or even some trees and stuff like that. Taking care of green spaces is, uh, is also an important political act. Um, and, and we are all responsible. You shouldn't let others decide. You, sh you have to participate yourself in order to take care of nature and inter alia then of, of climate, I think. Fantastic. Thank you um, very much for a very, very wonderful conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thanks, um, lovely. It's been, it's been good to, to share my thoughts with, with all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in, dear listeners. As always, please remember to check out our website, www.shuddhashort.com, for a list of all of our podcasts. Until next time.